Father God, Lord, thank you for today. God, Lord, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're King of Kings, that you're Lord of Lords. Lord, I pray that you would speak into each and every single person's heart here. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to receive, God. Lord, I pray that we would grow in our understanding and our knowledge of you, God, that we would leave here with a bigger picture of who you are, God, but also that you do something deep in our hearts, God, that it would impact not just our minds, but our lives as well, Lord, that it would, that it would sink, it would connect that heart heart and mind, God, and that we would just be completely bowled over, God, by how awesome you are, God, how awesome your gospel is, how great your gospel is, God, Lord, that that excitement that we've spoken about before, just that we would just overflow with excitement at your gospel, God, because it's just so, so awesome. Lord, I just pray today, God, that all the different stuff that people have going through their minds and stuff to do and challenges and just things, God, Lord, that you would just cut straight through that, Lord, not discounting them, but that they would be brought into your presence, God, Lord, that you would just speak to each and every one here. In your name, amen. Amen. Okay, guys, so we're going through Acts at the moment, as you guys know. We're now in Paul's kind of missionary journeys. He's just finished his first missionary journey. Woo-hoo! He's got back to Antioch. It's fantastic. Everyone's had a big party. He's kind of reported. It's super fun. And they're there, and they're preaching and teaching people. And then what we find happening in Acts 15 is some guys turn up. They come from Judea. They turn up, and then they start adding to the gospel. We're going to read the passage in a minute. And that brings Paul and Barnabas into real dispute with them. And so actually leads them to get sent by the church in Antioch with some others. And they go down or they go up. So the Bible says they go up, even though they go south. They go up to um, Jerusalem. It's higher up, I guess. They go up to Jerusalem and speak to the guys there. So today is called adding to the gospel. So, it's Acts 15 we're in today, so if you've got your Bibles, please open them. If not, it's on the screen. We're going to read 1 to 5. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. You know, obviously this causes Paul to go mental. He says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. That's going to be speaking about everything that had just happened, right? Everything that had happened in the first missionary journey. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So what's going on here? People are adding to the gospel. There are those in Jerusalem, we can see that there are those who've just stood up there, but then there are those who kicked this whole thing off, who actually went up from Judea over to Antioch and started preaching without any kind of permission of the church in Jerusalem, this thing that you need to be circumcised. Gentiles need to be circumcised and they have to follow the law of Moses. 
And specifically in the text, we see the guys who are going to Antioch say that they have to be circumcised. Why is well, why circumcision? Why is that such an issue? Well, actually, circumcision itself is this commitment. It's an obligation to obey the law. Paul, um, later when he wrote to the Galatians, he wrote a letter to the Galatians. And in that letter, in Galatians 5.3, he says this. It says, again, I declare to every man. Remember, the Galatians had a massive issue to do with grace and works. And they were trying to kind of earn their salvation. And so Galatians 5.3 says, Paul writing to them, he says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. So these men, they come up to Antioch preaching this message about being circumcised and ultimately about following this whole law of Moses. They're adding it all to the gospel. You know, whenever people add to the gospel, intentionally or unintentionally, it's offensive to God. It's not, it's not good. It removes the power of the gospel. Why? Because in effect, even if the heart's not there, what it is saying is... Christ's sacrifice isn't good enough. It's saying what Christ did on the cross, his work, is not quite complete enough. I need to do a little more. I need to do something to further perfect the work of Jesus in my life. And, you know, we hear that, and it seems, you know, it seems crazy to think that we could ever in our lives perfect the work of Jesus but how many people over church history today in the world how many people have been led to believe when they're exploring Christianity that they're not quite good enough that they need to do some stuff that they 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 need to meet God halfway in a sense they need to perfect themselves to a point that then the work of Jesus would be perfect in them how many people have heard the gospel of salvation and been told that they need to completely tidy up their lives before they can, it can really have effect in their life. See, in effect, it's saying that the work of Jesus is actually ineffective unless you meet him somewhere along that road. It's so wrong, isn't it? It's so wrong. We can never, ever add to the gospel. We should never add to the gospel. I was um, speaking with a pastor about this whole topic and he shared with me that there is apparently in this area, he was in India, missionary in India, obviously Hinduism is a big thing. And so when they, were, when they baptize people to make the baptism complete, to really make their, their, their salvation complete, they had to chew beef as they were being baptized to get rid of their Hinduism. Crazy, eh? How is chewing some beef? Because obviously beef or cow is the holy animal to Hindus. Like how? How is chewing a bit of beef going to perfect the work of Christ? It's adding something. And so they all get, Paul gets irate, challenges them. They send them down. This is what then happens. Verses 6 to 11. It says, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. So Peter goes first. It's like the heavyweights are sending in, and we're going to go through them. So Peter gets up. He says, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. 
for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So Peter here, Peter then, he stands up and he reminds everyone of the gospel. He reminds them that both they and their ancestors, that they just could never cope, that, that they couldn't cope with the burden of the law of Moses and that the Gentiles, that they've been saved by grace just as all of they have. How easy is it for us to add to the gospel for somebody else? How easy is it for us to, we can receive the grace maybe for ourselves and be like, that's great. But then when we can easily add to the gospel for someone else. Peter is standing up and he's saying, you know, guys, you could never keep the law. You know, you've received everything through grace. No one could ever keep the law. Why are you putting it on them? And the truth is today, guys, that if you're here today and you believe something along the lines of, I guess, being a good Christian, you know, I sometimes hear that. I find it hilarious. Being a good Christian or following, following the Ten Commandments, doing a bunch of different stuff, a bunch of good godly stuff. If you're in that place where you believe that is what earns you salvation, that that is the gospel for you, the good news for you, then you're in trouble because that is not the good news. That is not the good news of the Bible. That's not the gospel, being a good person. See, no one ever succeeded in keeping the law, being good enough except one, Jesus Christ. Salvation is not an evidence of our good works, of us following all the laws, being good enough, and then we get salvation. So salvation is not an evidence of our good works. Rather, our lives, our good works, our good deeds, all these kind of things, they are an evidence of our salvation. See, when we're saved and we experience that love of God, when we experience the fullness of God in us, that manifests itself through our lives. James speaks about it, doesn't he? Going off topic here a little bit, but James speaks about it. And he says, faith without works is dead. A lot of people think that means you've got to do a load of works to get faith, but it's the other way around. It's that actually your works are this evidence, this demonstration of your faith, that from your faith, your faith is the gospel. Your faith is what saves you. But from that place of experiencing the love of God, good works flow from that. See, if we're in a place where we believe that it's all our good works that save us, then actually, maybe a bit philosophical, but every good works then for us is one of the most selfish things we can ever do because it's purely self-serving that our good things that we do is in order to receive some eternal reward. See, but actually, from the Christian viewpoint, is we should be doing good works from a place of complete unconditional love, complete selflessness, selfless love to others. But we can't do that. We can't live that selfless love, do those good deeds and have those good things pour out of us unless we are first loved unconditionally. And that's the gospel because it is only the gospel. It's only that Christianity that presents that option for people. Jesus said, when he's speaking about the law and keeping the law, he says, you know, love God, and love others. That when we live in that love, 
we end up keeping the law. But that law keeping isn't a result of our good works. It's something that comes from it. It's not a way to get what the good news gives to us. So the good news is that even though we cannot keep the law, we can never be good enough, Jesus is good enough. And because of him, we're saved and brought back into relationship with God. And so Peter sits down, and the next two to get up, it's Paul and Barnabas, and they share this. In verses 12 to 18, and James also speaks in that, but it says this in verse 12, it says that the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. You know, awesome. Paul and Barnabas then get up and say, look, God's doing stuff amongst these guys. And te- probably in that part, it's sharing about all the stuff that happened in that first missionary journey that we've looked at, all the amazing things that have happened, the healings, the wonders, all this stuff. And then they sit down and James stands up. It says, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. And, and its ruins, I will rebuild and I will restore it. That keyword that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord who does these things things known from long ago so Paul and Barnabas they get up they share with everyone what the Holy Spirit's been doing the work of the Holy Spirit there uh, that's been at work in the Gentiles and then James gets up to speak now This is James, the brother of Jesus. We know this because Paul actually writes in Galatians about this trip down to um, Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. Galatians 1.19, it says, Paul writes, he says, I saw none of the other apostles. So I just saw Peter. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So James is this, the leader of the church in Jerusalem at that time. And he, we see him ultimately pronouncing judgment over this whole situation. So Paul and Barnabas... They've been speaking about the wonders, the Holy Spirit. Probably people in that there are beginning to think about the old prophecies from Joel. Remember, I'll pour my spirit out upon all flesh. Not suddenly this, the concept of just on all of the all Jewish flesh being challenged and they're, they're seeing even another thing where actually, no, it's on all flesh. And then James picks up with this light, this kind of theme within the prophets and he speaks from the prophets and he quotes this scripture which is actually primarily from Amos but he chucks some stuff in from like Isaiah and there's he kind of it's quite clever he kind of brings some stuff all together about rebuilding the tent of David I'll just read it again but it says after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent it's ruined I will rebuild and I will restore it that that keyword The rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So what's significant here? Why has he done this? You know, it's a bit kind of random, a bit out there, uh, a bit left field. Why is he referring to this? But actually, when you dig into it a little bit, it's a very wise part of scripture that James points to, because the issue at hand is between the gospel 
isn't it? It's between the gospel and those Jews wanting to add to the gospel, wanting to put the law of Moses onto the gospel. And then James gets up and he refers to the Old Testament scripture about rebuilding the tabernacle of David so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. So what does he do? He points to the good news of God for the Gentiles through and because of the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. That's what that prophet, that's what Amos is writing about. Because of the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David, that the Gentiles will be able to seek you. So what is the tabernacle of David? What is the tabernacle of David? Tabernacle of David is where, if you remember from Israel's history, the ark gets lost for a bunch of years. They find it. David's kind of, he brings it up to Jerusalem. There's all this kind of, I'm paraphrasing, but all this kind of triumphant procession into Jerusalem. They're sacrificing bulls every sort of 10 steps, stuff like that. And then when it gets there, they have a long pause in that house of Obed-Ebedon for a long time. And then they finally get it into Jerusalem, put it into this tent, the tabernacle of David, and that's where it's kept in, in Jerusalem, or in the, in the city of David. The ark is the presence of God with the people. God's, I mean, that's always been God's ultimate desire, is to dwell with his people. Okay, And so the Jews listening to James quoting this, the, these scriptures would have immediately known and suddenly thought about, okay, the tabernacle of David, but then also thought about the tabernacle of Moses. Because remember here, what we're speaking about is we're speaking about that we're focused on the law of Moses, this adding into the gospel of the law of Moses. And actually, within the law of Moses and all their history, where their mind would have gone, it would so much have gone to this tabernacle of Moses as well, the original tabernacle, because it's such a significant part of their history. What is the tabernacle of Moses? It's that first tabernacle that God gives, isn't it? It's the, it gives all those plans and everything. It's all written in Exodus. Where, where is it given? It's given on Mount Sinai, isn't it? It's given in the wilderness. And when it was given, there was all these specific laws and rituals that had to be followed and think sacrifices, regular sacrifices that had to be made. And most notably of all, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. We could do a sermon series on this. But most notably of all, there's a veil. There is this dividing curtain, the, the curtain that divides the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, the presence of God is, between the rest of the people. And they needed the priest to go in and be that, be that mediator between God and man for the sin of the people. But then there's the Tabernacle of David. Where is the tabernacle of David? Not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. Where's the tabernacle of David? It's not in the wilderness, but it is in the promised land. There were not regular ritual sacrifices besides the actual first sacrifices, the inauguration sacrifices, the one sacrifices going in. But there was praise. In that time, there was this kind of 24-hour amazing praise before the Lord. This, this one always gets me, you know, in Hebrews 13, 15, the writer to the Hebrews, he writes this, he says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. And in the tent of David, ultimately, there was no dividing curtain, that barrier between God and man in that 
tent wasn't there. It wasn't put in there. It wasn't set up in that way. All those requirements of the law of Moses to be able to be good enough to come before God weren't there. They'd been taken away completely. And so James, in this kind of masterstroke, points everybody in the room, Jew and Gentile, back to the gospel. That there was once a division, but now there is unity. That there was once a tent of Moses. There was the original tabernacle. But in these days, God has said through his prophets that he is rebuilding David's tent. The tent has no division. How would, how would God do that? How, how, how was that going to come about? Through David's own descendant. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of David, right? In genealogy, he's born of David. It's David's tent. And there's so many references about Jesus' life and, and this tent, this new tabernacle. And Jesus standing there one day, just one of these, Jesus standing there one day looks at the temple, remember? But, so you've had the tabernacle and then the ark's in the uh, tent, the tabernacle of David. And then Solomon builds the temple and it the temple is there. It's, it's, a, it's designed on the same as the tabernacle, the same kind of layout and structure. It's the same thing. It's just got solid walls. And what does Jesus say? He says to them in John 2, 19, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. What's he speaking about? Because he's not that, he's good, but he's not that quick at building as a man, you know. What's he speaking about? He's speaking about his resurrection. Remember, three days in the earth. That actually, in a sense, he becomes that tabernacle. He becomes that picture. He becomes that place where God and man can meet. Where God and man can be reunited in relationship together. It's all because of Jesus that we can come into the presence of God. You know, even at Jesus' death, secular historians of the time report the dividing curtain was ripped in two. In Romans 5.1, it says this. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God, unity with God, reconciliation with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not through anything else. Not through your works, not through your spirituality or anything like that, through the Lord Jesus Christ. That in him, almost like that picture, if you want, of the tent of David coming before the presence of God, that in him and because of him, we can stand face to face with the Father. See, that, that is the gospel, guys, that Jesus gives us righteousness, that we can be reconnected to God Almighty, and it has nothing to do with us, save us receiving that gift of righteousness, that he goes 99.999% of the way, and all he leaves it to us to do is choose him. And James continues in verse 19 and 21, he says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And I mean, you read this and you think, James has gone nuts. Like, what's going on? Because he's just kind of gone, said about like, we're not going to worry about any law stuff. And then suddenly he starts speaking about the law again. 
But actually, you know, James continues in great wisdom and with the heart of the gospel. You see, what he doesn't do is play down and rubbish the law of Moses. Because actually the law of Moses, the law is holy and it's beautiful. It's just we can't keep it. But there is only one who can. What James does is he looks to love. He seeks to bring unity where there's a potential for division, a potential for an entire eternal, like for the rest of history, church split. But he seeks to bring unity, which is the heart of the gospel, reconciliation of men and God together. And what he does in that heart is he highlights four things. And those four things don't have a bearing on salvation at all. Why is he mentioning them? Well, actually, there are four things that were quite prevalent with the Gentile churches as they're kind of coming to faith and discovering more of discovering God. They're actually four things that really culturally butted up very hard against the Jewish culture, Jewish practices, things they would have, that would have caused divisions, that as the gospel went out and spread through the synagogues and cities, because remember, sometimes it could be easy to forget that the gospel is going out around the world first into the synagogues. So this is something first going to all the Jews in the city and then going out into the Gentiles in the city. And so James is trying to avoid Division And for us today, reading it can seem a bit odd, can't it? Because he kind of chucks a load of stuff in together. And it's just like, okay, is kind of eating blood on the same par as, you know, if anyone's from, or been to Scotland, you'll have blood pudding. If anyone's, like, blood pudding and kind of fornication, sexual immorality seem a bit weird to put in the same sort of sentence, like these kind of guidance uh, on, on eating laws. But they're mixed they're mixed together, not to put them in the same category of kind of importance or morality and things like this, but they're mixed because James's ultimate heart here is on the peace and unity between people. What they do is they then write this letter back to Antioch. They send a couple of guys with them. They're not random guys either. They're really prominent guys, Judas and Silas. We're going to read the passage in a minute. They send them back to Jerusalem to pretty much back up what Paul and Barnabas is going, going back to tell them. And also, they write them a letter. Something else that's kind of cool is uh, we read in Galatians about this trip, because he's not mentioned the whole time, but Titus, great, good, great book. Titus, he's there as well. Paul writes in, there's, there's not a sign this, but Paul writes in Galatians 2.1, then after 14 years, that's how long it's been since he was last in, last in Jerusalem. So that gives you a bit of an idea. Remember when he runs away, flees Jerusalem, goes back home to Tarsus, and then the rest of, the rest of Acts, he hasn't been there for 14 years. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. So traveling back, to back up to Antioch, you've got, it's like the whole gang's there, you know? It's like the New Testament's there. Probably, Luke's probably kicking along with them, you know, keep your account. You've got Barnabas and Paul and, and Titus and Silas. Judas is there as well. So I'm going to read from 22 to 35. So this is where it takes a bit of a turn, but it's go, this going back to Antioch, it's quite interesting in a couple of ways. First, it says, then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. They send a letter. It's a good idea, isn't it? Rather than just trusting someone's word on this, they write a letter. So the apostles and elders, your brothers, 
to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. This is support. Acts 9, we haven't heard about it, but it actually Paul went, remember he's in Tarsus, which is one of the main towns in Cilicia. He's there for a long time before Barnabas comes and gets him. Very likely he's planted a lot of these churches in Cilicia back there before his first missionary journey. So, greetings, that's how it starts. Greetings. Very likely this letter is written by James. There's that word, greetings, the, there's, aside from it being referred to in Acts 23, at one point, the only other use of that word is at the beginning in James 1.1. So very likely it's James who's like the head who's writing this letter. So he carries on and he writes, We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Useful hey, to write a letter, stuff that Paul and Barnabas could never say themselves. So praising them. Also a beautiful picture of church unity. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. 28 says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. This letter, this kind of section, is a little ref organizational reflection of the gospel. This beautiful seeking of unity between churches that really are very different. And also, it's a, it's a great picture for us of the leadership structure in the early church, that there is this structure, there is, some kind of, there is some kind of structure there, but it isn't domineering. It isn't this kind of hierarchical thing of lording it over someone. But at the same time, there is the submission to different people in love out of respect for a place that God's given them. It's an awesome picture there of this love between people that they don't have to they don't have to follow what they've said they don't have to follow it there's no pressure there but they do out of a desire for unity in the body and that really comes from this heart of the gospel it carries on then in verse 30 it says so the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets. See, these guys aren't just some random guys that said, hey, go for a walk with these guys. They're reputable guys, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who'd sent them. Go back to Jerusalem. But Silas decided to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. I think it's kind of this, it's a really cool moment, isn't it? Possibly an awesome time in Antioch just then. Some great preachers, everyone speaking. And you've had this kind of shaky time where people have challenged the gospel. But then the church has come together, unified around the gospel, and with order and peace and love. Because 
The great picture of this Jewish church, predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem, value the church in Antioch so much that they go to all this trouble to set these things down, that they send these guys out. It's like, like if these false teachers have gone out to proclaim a false gospel to you and taken the energy and effort to go from Judea to come and see you, we're, we're going to go at least that far. We're sending people to you because we love you and we believe in you. And there's this importance laid on the authenticity of the gospel. And you know, guys, there have been many times throughout church history where the gospel gets like buffeted, gets smacked. People rise up, come up with some kind of crazy random theology. And yet actually when the church stands together and it stands in unity and it moves forward together, the gospel actually always has done. The gospel stays secure. An interesting story, bear with me with this, an interesting story. I remember it. I was there. It was AD 325. It's a famous meeting. You guys may have heard of it. It's the Council of Nicaea. Okay. We know this one. It's a very important time. They came up with a great creed. And they sat together and they had this meeting to confirm the divinity of Jesus. This guy, Arius of Alexandria, he was basically preaching at the time that Jesus was God, but he was a God that God created. So kind of like Zeus came from Kronos or whatever, that Jesus was God, but not like ultimately has always been God. And so obviously a massive issue for the gospel, massive issue for the Trinity and core pieces of theology. Anyhow, these guys sat together and unanimously agreed the divinity of Jesus, that was decided and, and defended. The gospel there was defended. That actual moment in time, people often refer to as kind of, well, actually, you guys never decided that Jesus, you may have someone say this to you, so here's a little response. So people sometimes will say, Jesus, you guys never decided Jesus was God until AD 325, okay? It's just not the truth. Not, it's just not the truth. They, they, ha they had a unanimous decision because that was the thing that was there. It was never in question. That was the thing that was there right from the beginning. So why was it that they took 325 years, these 300 years after Jesus, to actually decide to sit down and make a decision together? Mm -hmm. Well, up until that point, it, completely impossible to get together. The level of persecution on Christians to that point, it was hard to even hold a meeting, let alone actually come together to make some kind of formal arrangement. For that meeting, of the thousands of bishops and leaders around the Roman Empire, it was actually arranged by Constantine, of those thousands of leaders, only a few hundred could get there because most of them were either dead or deeply maimed. So they, could, they were so injured from torture that they couldn't travel. Because just prior to Constantine in the early 300s, Diocletian had had this massive persecution campaign, destroying churches, killing people, torturing people. And so the church almost was completely just in, in recovery. So impossible to actually have that meeting before then. But this thing of in God, in the gospel, seeking unity is important. So back to Antioch. Those guys there, we see that we, there was this good, strong leadership that was just essential. Otherwise, it could have been catastrophic for the church. I'm just going to go into the last part, which is verses 36 to 40. So we kind of see this importance of the gospel on the people, on the church. That you, the gospel brings unity in the church, unity in the organization of the church, where love is more important than like the personality or whatever. But now we go into 
verse 36 to 41. It says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark, John, sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So we see this point, Paul gets itchy feet, decides, okay, Barnabas, let's go back. And they're, they're great friends, aren't they? But let's, let's go back, let's go back and see all those churches. We've just seen them on the first missionary journey. But then they have this massive falling out because Barnabas wants to take his nephew, actually, it is, John or Mark, and Paul strongly refuses, and they, they have this disagreement. And I think it's, it's, one of the most, it's, a, it's one of the most sad parts in a hacks that these two guys who have been brothers to each other almost, you know, like toiled together under the sun, faced persecution together, ate together, slept under the stars as they've kind of traveled through mountains and crossed rivers. And yet it's so, so hard, and yet it reminds us here at the end of this kind of chapter really about adding to the gospel it reminds us that these guys are just human that they are fallible that they are unreasonable and quarrelsome so i think there's some reason that luke chucks this in at the end of this chapter you know he could have put it well actually he didn't divide the chapters but so reason luke puts it in you know this thing of into a chapter where it's about you need to follow the law you need to be good enough and we can look at Paul and think Paul's the man you know he's awesome surely Paul would have always been good enough but even these great men even these awesome guys of God they fall short of the requirement they fall short you know whilst Paul maybe had some kind of claim about what's stopping John abandoning us again leaving us in a bad situation I think if you look at scripture you can see that probably Paul was being a little bit too harsh maybe not graceful enough to John and similarly have been tougher probably been tough for John realizing he'd ultimately caused that situation but you know what the beautiful thing is in this whole, this whole picture, the beautiful thing is that God always has a story of redemption that's in there. That where there's brokenness, there's good news. That ultimately our separation from God, it's the gospel, isn't it? That we are broken, we're separated from God. And the gospel reunites us with him. There is a story of reconciliation. That where there is division, there can be reconciliation. That even if we have massive fallouts with people, even if it's in church, if we have huge fallouts with people in church, the way of the Lord is redemption and restoration. Why? Because it's the story of the gospel. And you know, sometimes trust, trust takes time to build, but the way of the gospel is redemption. And we see years later, Paul, he's obviously mellowed, And he's found this reconciliation with John and Mark over this whole thing. And he writes in 2 Timothy 4.11, he's there. He says, only Luke, who's writing this, only Luke is with me. Get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Isn't that beautiful? 
This thing of, you see Paul leaving Antioch on the second missionary journey, and he's just like, no way, I'm not having him. And he, he falls out with a great friend because he's so like anti this guy. But then later, he's writing this about that same guy, that something's obviously changed in his heart, that a reconciliation has occurred. So this chapter begins in Antioch with Paul defending the gospel. And then it's this, that beautiful picture that Paul, I guess, even knew himself in some senses that we can never be good enough, but by God's grace, he has forgiven us and makes us worthy. That, and it's a chapter that ends in Antioch with Paul falling short as well, not giving the grace, being quarrelsome, grumpy. It's this beautiful picture of how much we need Jesus how perfect the gospel is, how we can never perfect it. So guys, never in your life take away or add to the gospel because you'll always take away from just how awesome it is. Don't put things on you that detract from the amazing reality of the gospel. And in your lives, see the impact of the gospel, what, what it is. See, the forgiveness you've received, the redemption you've received, the grace that you've received. See that, dwell on that, and just out of pure gratitude, whatever the situations going on in your lives, afford that to others. Do you add to the gospel? Do you add to it for yourself? So we can add to it for ourselves, right? Surely I can never, surely I've got to, I've got to do X, Y, Z before I'm ever going to be good enough for God. Surely I've got to do all this stuff before God would ever consider blessing me. Or do you add to the gospel for others? Do you need to change your thinking about the gospel? And for those of you guys who don't know, changing your thinking is actually the word repent. Repent doesn't mean to be sorry, actually. It means to change your thinking about something. Do you feel like you've got a burden of constantly trying to qualify for God, constantly trying to be good enough for God? And I think, guys, if we're just going to kind of ask you to prayer, like if that's you today, I just, I just release you from that. You know, he is sufficient. His work is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Just, and then just let, let that burden just go from you now, just as we pray. Just let, let, it, just let it fall from you. Just release it. Just release it. Is there a person in your life that you need to see and find unity and reconciliation with. Is there someone in your life who you're holding unforgiveness towards? Is there a relationship that needs to be restored? If that is you, when we just have this moment in, in a minute, we're going to all pray together. If that is you, you just pray, pray with us. And lastly, guys, everyone just cl close your eyes. Lastly, have you received the grace of God? Have you received the gospel? Do, is Jesus your king? Do, do you follow him? Do you follow him? If that is you and you're thinking, actually, you know, I don't know Jesus. I don't have a relationship with Jesus. If that is you and you want this, this relationship with him and you want to start that journey with him, just pop your hands in the air. 
I'm just going to pray about two things. One, if there's someone in your life that you need to reconcile with, you need to forgive. And then also this thing about adding to the gospel, either for others or for yourself, burdening yourselves. So if there's someone you need to forgive, you guys just pray pray this with me. Father God, I thank you, God, for your gospel. Lord, I thank you for the grace you've shown me. I thank you for the forgiveness, God, that you have afforded me. And I just forgive whoever it is, guys. Just say, say their name in your prayers. I just forgive for all the things that they've done for me. Lord, I pray there would be reconciliation in our relationship. In your name. Amen. And if you're, if you're here and you feel, you know, I just burden myself. I put so much on myself to qualify for God. I feel I have to be good enough for him, otherwise he's not going to pay attention to me or love me or, or my salvation's going to be unassured. I'm just going to pray for you now. Father God, Lord I, Lord, I thank you, God, that you're King of kings and Lord of lords. I thank you for your ultimate grace, God. I thank you for your gospel, Lord, that it's not about us, but it's all about you. And if that's you today, you know, you just say, say you just pray this out to God, Lord. You just drop that, drop that from your life. Drop that from your heart. Just say, I, I refuse to feel that or believe that I need to qualify for you anymore. Father God, Holy Spirit, come and fill this place, God. Come and fill this place right now. Lord, I pray that for each person here, we'd go to just a new place, a new level in our understanding and joy of your gospel, God. The freedom that we have in your gospel, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you are, you are everything. Lord, I thank you that it is in you that we have been reconciled to the Father. God, Lord, I thank you that in you all blessing is found. God, Lord, I thank you that there is nothing that any of us could ever do to perfect your work. And I just pray your peace on every single one of our hearts today. Guys, I just bless you with the peace of the Prince of Peace. That you would have that ultimate peace in your heart for your ultimate destination, for your ultimate eternity, that it is on him, not on you. Lord, make our hearts open to receive today. Amen.